Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. plays that long something's gone wrong but everything's alright Gret Newsham is going to join me here in a few minutes so uh, we'll do that today and talk to Grant see what's I don't rightly understand still what's going on in the Pacific Australia issued a statement saying that a naval base at, at essentially Guadalcanal, which is the Solomon Islands, right? Yeah, Guadalcanal, for all you Marines out there. With all the symbolism of that, um, 
is a red line. And so we've been talking about this for a while. And that is, if it was such a red line, that why didn't somebody do something about it before this? And that's not the only place that China is engaged in, quote-unquote, security treaty activity. And yet, you know, the Biden administration, as the Trump administration before it, cast a blind eye to it, seemingly. Or then send somebody down there and says, oh, this is a problem now. Well, where the fuck have you been and what, do you, what, the, what the fuck are you doing? So we'll talk to Grant about that. But Japan got involved in that discussion in the last couple of days saying that, <clears throat> that, yeah, that's a problem. So anyway, um, we'll talk to Grant about that. And uh, the Philippines, uh, this is the continuing dominance of China in, in the things of our lives, right? Um, let's see. I'm trying to think where, I, where the hell I sent it to. Because what I, what I do is I read the news, and then when I see something that interests me, I send it to myself. Mm-hmm. And um, there was an article about the Philippines and um, a movie that the Chinese had made in, that, that was made in the United States being distributed in the Philippines. And lo and behold, map of the South China Sea dominated by China with Chinese flags and things like that. And so, um, yeah, so now unless you make it correspond to the reality is China dictates it, right? Your movie will not be distributed in China, right? It's the same thing as the Top Gun patches, right? Somehow or other, old Maverick got his jacket adjusted by his Chinese tailor. And um, gone were the patches of Taiwan, or was the patch of Taiwan. Amazing, right? So uh, that that... So we'll talk to Grant about that this morning. You know, um, in my head is the, the discussion that we had yesterday about, um, about why the Secretary of Defense would say what he said, right? Very deliberate statement about, and I've always thought it dangerous when, and Tim did this yesterday, so let me blast Timmy here while he's not on the air. Um. I think it's always dangerous to attribute something to someone's ignorance that's in a high place. Because I don't think it's, I, I think rarely is the explanation so simple. And to me, I think, to me and Jeff being the most partisan of the four of us, I think their partisan uh, politics clouds their vision sometimes. And they're not alone in that. I think a lot of people are like that. Um, so it's possible that the Secretary of Defense is signaling not only to Vladimir Putin, but to those around him, that you're not going to win this 
that the United States, along with our Western allies, are going to support Ukraine in such a way that we're going to make it extremely costly for you to continue to wage this war against them. And in so doing so, attempting, in so doing, attempting to influence internal Russian policies. Now, maybe it's messaging to Vladimir Putin, maybe it's messaging to other people who would influence him or seek to replace him because of the, the cost, the ongoing cost to the Russian people. So I don't know. In either case, is the message of strength and resolve relative to the Western approach, is that, um, is that a bad message? Well, I think there's certainly consideration to be given to escalating the fight and this whole notion of, oh, this is a proxy war. Well, it's not a proxy war. Russia attacks Ukraine, something they've been working on for a while. Vladimir Putin decides to do it and believes that it will be over quickly, but that doesn't happen, right? And, and again, if you go back to our discussions, you know, I, I you know, and I think you, what you heard was, and I, I want to say Timmy was kind of adamant about this. If he does anything but attempts to take what he can take, which is the easternmost territory in the Donbass, he's going to roll the dice on events that he's not going to control. And we, and we talked about the weather and things like that. And so, <clears throat> but Putin may be misinformed about the nature of his own military, uh, launches it anyway. And so now are you trying to, you're just trying to communicate to those in Russia and Vladimir Putin himself, this is going to go on for a while. We're going to we're going to strengthen the uh, military assets of Ukraine. Their spine is already stiff as shit, okay, and they're pissed. And now you know what they have in their nostrils: the sense of victory that they have a chance to win. Uh oh, yeah, and that's never a good thing. So. Yeah, I don't, again, a statement of resolve, um, I, don't, I don't see it as a bad thing. So my question to them yesterday was, um, who is, who's the message intended for? And <clears throat> I think maybe there's a couple audiences. Um, Maybe it's the direction of the Western allies. So that would be one group it's intended for. And then the people that are making decisions in Russia. And maybe the people that would depose Vladimir Putin. This is not going to end anytime soon. So I don't know. That's been in my head. If you have any thoughts, I'd be curious uh, what, you, what you think about that. So anyhow. 
Good morning to you. Uh, Grant's going to join us here in a couple minutes. Uh, the United States Marine Corps Band makes this morning official. Good morning to you. <laughs> dedicated to I'm struggling right now um actually I'm not I had a chance yesterday to to do an online uh event with uh the body bearers from Marine Barracks Washington and uh you know interestingly enough they probably see more death than anybody in the Marine Corps and so there's interesting discussion about um with them you know, all young people, all young guys <clears throat> who do a very, very unique ceremonial job and, uh, you know, smart uh, and yet are exposed to, you know, burying old people is one thing, burying young people is another, burying people that commit suicide is another, seeing their children, wives and whatnot is another, and seeing that to the tune of hundreds of times a year is quite another. So interesting discussion, and uh, one I hope continues. You know, because this this whole concept of you know I was I was I was making a I have a slide in my head. Um, in the adult population in the United States, ninety four percent of us don't have a serious mental illness. That would leave six percent of the population with a serious mental illness. So if you don't have a serious mental illness, right, and you're just struggling with life, what do you do? How do you get through this stuff? And that's what this thing that I call post-traumatic winning is about. Um, it certainly is not anything that would be um, in the realm of what I would call um, serious mental health, which applies to people with serious mental illnesses. That's beyond the scope of what this discussion is. This discussion is mental fitness right mental fitness for people that are just um struggling with the events of their life and so to me it's it's really important to have the discussion to normalize it to make sh people know that there is nothing wrong with you that you know life normally is difficult well life when 
as a social worker, first responder, where you're exposed to this stuff on a continuing basis, and I would say that they fall into that group. Um, if you're not having this discussion, and what surprises me is we tend not to. Um, they have good leaders, so they do. But so it was an interesting discussion yesterday. So uh, this is dedicated to a very unique group of Marines um, who do a very unique job, are very conscientious about it, um, and just a, a, a great conversation yesterday. And I hope that in the future that they uh, they continue to they continue to exercise the muscles of mental fitness. So this is dedicated to the the body bearers, the last people that will ever let you down. <laughs> betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think and you don't say it honestly and bluntly what keeps you awake at night nothing i keep other people awake at night for this campus had prepared him well <clears throat> i'm very confident that thank you very much <clears throat> if this was vodka it'd be a lot better speech <clears throat> But I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So, young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day. And Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't, we don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago. Persevere against difficult challenging conditions and odds to win. You gotta win. I know what the reason is. I won't go into it, but my temperatures are all screwed up. Currently, it is partly sunny and 59 in Quantico. At Cherry Point, 
That's in North Carolina. I don't know what the temperature is. <laughs> so I'm just going to give them as I have them. In Manila, it is dark cloudy in 84. Darwin, dark cloudy in 81. Quantico is now sunny in 59. How about Pendleton? Camp Pendleton is cloudy in 61. At the home of Walmart Radio, it is mostly cloudy in 61. Looking for a high today. Oh, yesterday was beautiful, by the way. Only 66 degrees today, so it'll be cooler. Tomorrow, 65. Friday, 70. Saturday, 72. And Sunday, 68. I'm okay with that. All right, so let me get Grant here. And uh, we will uh, go ahead and uh, talk to Grant about life in the world of Grant Newsham. So that important. Skype is spooling. You're going to get to hear the little, yeah, little Skype thing. Stand by. Here you go. Whoa. Joining me with a uh, spectacular array of color is Grant Newsham. Grant, how are you? Mm, fine, thanks. My apologies for being late this morning. That's okay. When the uh, the Skype thing like rang, my uh, computer um, volume was set at max, so it like scared um, the hell out of me. <laughs> Wait a minute! I'm surprised that a southern, a gentrified southern man like yourself would even admit to something like that. Well, uh, it's uh, okay. I forget. I was making that up. I was just trying to be funny. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <clears throat> Grant, what do you make? Uh, I saw, I don't know where I saw it this morning, but Robert Reich wrote a piece saying that Twitter is a monopoly. And um, and I thought, uh, how interesting. Because he didn't seem, to, I, don't, I don't recall him writing that when it was a monopoly for uh, that tended to tilt a lot in his party's favor. Um, what do you make of all this, the, the hand-wringing and the, bloviating and my final tweet and all of this because uh, maybe maybe a forum might be um, I don't know maybe a little bit more impartial or I don't know if that's possible but what do you make of all of that and I, I, I it is and here's a serious question um, the um, so that's Twitter obviously going to um, I don't know, attempt to lean in a different direction. And that direction is going to be a little bit either towards the center or more, at least more right, lean, more right. I don't know if it leans right, but it will not lean as left as it has in the past. The New York Times has hired a writer, uh, an editor, to replace Dean Baguet. And they have, they have very, on the down low, channeled, we will not, 
continue uh, this defense of the Biden administration. We want to get back to doing the news. And um, and that will certainly have some implications. And then Warner Brothers Discovery have bought CNN last late last week. They tubed CNN plus and they have come out and said we want to go back to the roots of what CNN used to be which was a network devoted to journalism not advocacy now that was that was echo uh, that was originally started I think in an interview on CNBC by a guy named Malone who was a board member last October November it was just uttered again by their uh, CEO and so um I think that's very interesting. Maybe if you see news organizations begin to say, you know what, we need to get back to doing the news. And I'd be curious about your thoughts about all of that as somebody who's in the business of maybe not so much news, but you're in the business certainly of commentary on the news. Um, your thoughts about that? Yeah, well, I'm actually old enough to remember reporters back when you know, reporting the news was to go dig up the facts and present them and let the readers decide. I think you're that old, too. I mean, I even knew some of these guys, you know, it's, which isn't surprising. Um, but this is, you know, I hope it is a, a shift that, that stays. Uh, what it, Robert Reich and uh, all the people whose hair is now afire about uh, Elon Musk buying Twitter you know, they just prove this, that old saying, you can dish it out, but you can't take it. Um, you know, what these people were doing and is censorship, uh, brainwashing, mind control, it's straight out of uh, George Orwell. And I, I do recommend reading, you know, Orwell. And it was just insane what they were trying to do. And, uh, you know, control, you know, information or control people's thought because they thought that they had ever they were good they were just and righteous and everyone else was evil and uh, at best might be allowed to live uh, but certainly were not being going to be allowed to be exposed to evil incorrect thoughts to error and this it was just it was in, been in crazy to watch this go on and all Elon Musk is saying, you know, we're not going to do this content moderating crap. Uh, you know, it's going to let people, let ideas get out there and argue and, you know, see which ones win out. And New York Times, you know, that guy they hired as their top editor, I guess, uh, he, if you look at his background, he spent a long time in China and I think took his chances. You know, he covered Tiananmen Square. So he'd really been around and he knows you know, these kind of regimes and what you're seeing, have seen at the New York Times in the United States is uh, information control, thought control, uh, akin to what the Chinese Communist Party does. So let's see if this guy you know, can do something about the New York Times' woke newsroom, you know, full of apparently absolute lunatics. Uh, let's see what he can do. Uh, but that is what it, you know, strikes me as it's you know, it, it's a few people here and there saying, you know, this is crazy. Let's do something about it. And let's just go back to sort of this free debate of, of ideas. And, and so, you know, I hope, I say, I hope it works, um, but we, we'll find out. You know, um, 
Musk talked about Twitter being the town square and without a civil place to dis- discuss ideas, civiliz- civilized society, you know, was doomed or words to that effect, right? Um, let me, th- this, these are the words of Zaslav. Well, his name's David das- Zaslav. He's the chief executive and president of Warner Brothers and Discovery. <clears throat> and he talked about this. Um, he was talking about advocacy networks that have that have come to dominate. Fox being one, CNN another, uh, MSNBC another. And he talked about getting away from that, right? And he said, if we can get away from that, we can have a civilized society. And without it, if it all becomes advocacy, we don't have a civilized society. So this is very interesting. CEOs talking about civilized society. It's like, what the hell? And this is this is the quote from uh, this guy named John Malone, <clears throat> who's a who's a board member of Warner Brothers Discovery. I would like to see CNN evolve back to the kind of journalism that it started with, and actually have journalists which would be unique and refreshing. And for those of you of us who remember when CNN started, that's what it was. It was a news network. And then somewhere along the line, they developed the headline news network, which was their hard news. And then they began to have more news commentary features. And that is their beginning into the advocacy business. And then it has, uh, it has gotten more and more, but, and, and then, one of the things I hope will happen is if these these gentlemen can be successful with their endeavors, commercially successful, that they will be rewarded. Uh, because I know I I would be more than happy to um, watch and pay for somebody who reports the news, somebody that you could read and say, yeah, you're going to see both sides of it, and you're going to get the news here reported in a in, in a fashion that is a throwback to. Old-fashioned journalism. How refreshing. But it's got to be um, it's got to be commercially viable. But I think it would be. I think there's a lot of Americans uh, who endure this and would rather not. And so maybe uh, I, I just find the discussion refreshing in and of itself that people are actually talking about civil discourse, right? Civil discourse. Yeah. You know, you know, we've always had, you know, this sort of, I don't know, fierce, fierce debate. I think that's always been the case, you know, for forever. And so that's nothing new is people yelling at each other, having strong beliefs and opinions and saying them stridently. Uh, but the effort to eliminate your opponents or to prevent them from even being able to say anything or to and to have others hear their ideas, that's something new. And. That is is scary, and you know, we'll see what comes. But I think when some of these CEOs speak out about it, I think partly it's because they're not they're losing a ton of money with this woke business. Yeah. Uh, there is only so much money to be made with it, and I think that they're seeing that most people don't like that, and it 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 shows up on the bottom line. Uh, so there's I think there's an aspect of that, but there's maybe is a little bit of, you know, people kind of waking up it is ironic that it takes a guy like elon musk to uh 
threaten to buy Twitter that kind of <laughs> shakes this log jam loose. Uh, but it is, you know, you'd think that somebody somewhere, or gover you know, the government or our representatives would have done something about this. But um, you know, it, takes, it seems like he's the guy that, that started it. And you know, we'll see how far it goes. You know, one, you know, if anyone is wondering what like a, a regular journalist, a, a reporter of the old school is like, I think Britt Hume on Fox News uh, is pretty close to what I remember that the best of those as. Uh, you know, just but he's you know it's almost like with him it's almost like you know going you have to it's like going to a zoo and seeing an animal almost because uh, you don't see him a whole lot of him around anymore. You know, um, you can see, uh, you can imagine in a boardroom going over numbers, right, and saying, okay, look, if we propose this these modifications. What do you think that with the, the the accountant sitting there? What do you think that would do to, to the numbers, you know, and getting back? Well, by our analysis, we would broaden our customer base by X number of million people, right? We believe that would translate to, and you can see you can see the tumblers going right, Grant. You could see like, although it's nice to talk about, you know, getting away from advocacy. Advocacy comes at a cost to a corporation, and that cost is billions of dollars in revenue and profit i, I would dare say and yeah, so and, yeah. and so you know we have responsibility to our shareholders and we, we want we want to reach a broader audience we're not going to do that by continuously doing what we're doing so we need to rethink this and then as you begin to to explore the numbers you sit there and go wow the other interesting thing i think is you know if you recall back in the day in the newspaper you sat down, you went outside, and you got the newspaper. You opened it up. You took the rubber band off, and you opened it up. And the top of the page were the lead stories. They might be local. They might be national on any given day. They might be regional. And, um, and then down below, you had the lesser national local stories that broke squelch. And then you would open the page, and then there'd be a page of local news, right? And you would have a smattering of news stories. Then you would have the business section. You would have a lifestyle that would have cooking and other things like that. You'd have the stock quotes that were printed, the sports section. You would have the editorial section that had the op-eds and, and um, letters to the editor, uh, the editorial done by the, the newspaper's editorial writers. And this stuff was all segmented, right? And it, there were certain things that belonged in certain places. And <clears throat> when we got newspapers like that, there was no way that, you know, the Washington Post could dominate much more than Washington. It was influential in the political class, but there was a lot of voices. Well, now, right, in our digital age, you can dominate. You can silence. You can do those things. And so your reference to Orwell is is spot on and and robert writes uh twitter's a monopoly okay well then hasn't it been a monopoly do i recall you writing this when the monopolistic power of twitter was being used on your behalf oh no but that is a sick twisted game we play uh, when we're not interested in, in a playing in a in a pl even playing field we're just interested in the outcome and so i i, I find the discussion very interesting and i i, I agree with you grant I mean, 
uh, a commercially viable entities that, that report the news that would teach the other news organizations a lesson about their reporters and what they should be doing as opposed to what they do do. I think it'd be refreshing. Um, go ahead. Oh, well, that's why actually why Fox News got started in the first place. And if you recall, when it started, it, it veered off in certain quarters, but it still has some, uh, you're going to get a perspective that nobody else was reporting. Right. And they've been wildly successful. Uh, but as you, you say, you, you do have to be careful that you, you know, that the advocacy doesn't become uh, sort of one thought or just this one authorized thought. You know, and, I, and I never thought in my life that I would ever be told what I could read, what I could listen to, what I could hear, what I could think, and what I could say. I never thought there'd be any limits on it. But you look at what has happened, and that is, that's what we've been dealing with. And, and hopefully that, that stops. And I remember it was probably 30 years ago when I first got an inkling of this. It was uh, must have been during the Clinton era, or the, that first George Bush one, that there was a, a fuss about uh, this sort of free speech and people being able to say what they want. And there was some, it was, a, it was a, one of these leftist nuts and advocate and activist. And, and she was saying that, and so she was saying, no, people, you know, you shouldn't, these, the people on the other side shouldn't even be allowed to say what they, um, you know, what, you know, what they, what they think or what they want to say, they should be silenced. And someone said, well, but you say you agree in free speech. And what she said was, well, what I think is correct. You know, I think the truth. And implicitly, these other people are just insane, you know, devils who should be destroyed. And that's when I got a sense, really, of the just the, the high stakes here and, and the absolute venom that one side had for uh, competing views. And you do find, of course, that even, you know, on those when you have, say, uh, an extreme you know, on either side, that they'll gradually eat each other and start to think that even within their little narrow world of nuts that some of them are, are evil as well and need to be destroyed. But uh, it is, it's a very delicate thing. I think anything that who's, you know, we take it for granted because we're Americans, but if you've lived in a communist society uh, or a sort of a authoritarian society, I think people, everybody is very worried about what they see, have been saying, and I think they recognize it for what it is. So, you know, we'll see how this goes, but I, I hope it, you know, I hope it works. Um, somebody asked me this question, so I'll ask you, if you could meet one historical figure other than Jesus of Nazareth, who would it be? Oh man, Tom Jones. <laughs> okay. but, uh, well, assuming he wasn't around. Okay, so, uh, He's alive, for God's sake, Grant. Yeah. Oh, boy, there, there's a bunch of them, but maybe one of the first ones. That it's, and you just never know who comes to mind. Probably John Mosby. Oh, really? Of Mosby's Raiders fame? Uh-huh. I think I'd like to meet him. Yeah. Why? Because he was a well, when he's an interesting. Well, that's why you want to meet anyone. Right. But the you know you look at his story. You know he got kicked out of University of Virginia for shooting a guy who threatened to who threatened him. Uh, studied law while he was in jail, became a lawyer, and then when the the, the war between the states started, uh, he didn't have any military experience. But he you know then you know, did all the things he did in his guerrilla campaign and. You know, one story after another. But after the war, it was equally interesting. You know, he was 
uh, friends with General Grant. He was a Republican in Virginia. And there were attempts on his lives, and Grant uh, got him a, a job as the consul general in Hong Kong, where he was for six, seven years. Uh, and they, and he, you know, he did some other things. He was a lawyer for the railroad companies out west after that. But there's just something about the Mosby story uh, that you know is Robin Hoodish in, in a way and that sort of is, I've always found interesting. And I don't know why his name came to mind immediately. You know, when there's probably a couple hundred people who potentially could have. But. Uh, what do you make of the Secretary of Defense? We had an interesting discussion yesterday um, about the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin. Uh, he and uh, Anthony Blinken and his manicured fingernails were um, in Ukraine to meet with uh, President Zelensky. Uh, and... Uh, you know, the Secretary of Defense very, and obviously very publicly says the United States wants to see Russia weakened at the end of this. Um, now, it's one thing to have policies that are tilted in that direction. It's another thing to begin, right, in a very obviously public way um, uh, announcing this. What is, who was the audience for that grant, in your opinion, and, and, why, and why say that in that way? I don't know who the audience, intended audience was beyond the immediate people, but uh, this is not something that should have been said, and certainly not to the Russians. Uh, you know, and I, you know, looked at, you sort of cringed when you heard him, heard it. And, you know, I tried to read the whole transcript to see if there was a context that you could look at and, you know, have it make more sense. But there wasn't. Uh, he said, you know, at best, is we wanted to weaken the Russians so they can't do something like they're doing in Ukraine again. Right. Uh, but the Russians are the last people on earth that you threaten like this, or you say you want to weaken them. Uh, even looking beyond uh, Vladimir Putin, who's you know bad news and doesn't take well to that sort of threat, the, the Russians them in general them, themselves, when they hear that. You know, they, it is not going to provoke a good reaction from them. You know, they will hear it as the Americans want to uh, harm us, uh, make us miserable, destroy us, etc. They'll hear what, the, what they want to hear. And they are not going to respond well. And this is not what you say. Um, I think that uh, the Secretary of Defense proves sort of the adage that everybody says, what well, you know when you've said one thing too many, and he said one thing too many, and apparently the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff has followed up on this uh, to back him, you know, to say basically the same thing. And it's not what you say to the Russians. Uh, this is, is ridiculous to hear this from these people uh, who should know better. Um, you go about your business and you make sure that, you know, the Ukrainians have all the things they need and you give them what support other support you can under the table, but you don't talk about this uh, in this way. And I think it was a, a big mistake to say this. And, you know, we'll see, see what effect it has, but it, it sure didn't help. You know, and if a, like a lieutenant had said this, you know, something like the equivalent in some setting, you'd have to call them in and say, look, we got some other work for you to do over over there. Uh, but this, this was... Um, the wrong thing to say to these people. 
Okay, so let me ask you to be a member of the OPT and be in the room and and explain it, okay? Assuming that they're not stupid, okay? What is what what is their intent? Can you do you think you can I mean, so you you you've attempted to read it. So what do you think their intent is of, of this? Well, I think that the intent, you know, kind of, it sounds sort of, you know, commonsensically, it's kind of just stating the obvious, you know, you'd like Russia to get, uh, to end up at when all this ends, you know, however it ends, you'd like it to end up with Russia in a position where they cannot or will not attack another country, right. will not, and that's what you want. And, and I think that that's kind of an assumed, you know, that's not that surprising, and it sort right. of makes sense. Right. But it's not what you say. Uh, it's okay. You, so you, you, what would be? So I'm asking you to be a member of the OPT PT and then report out on. Here's why they said that. Why would they say it then? Again, assuming <laughs> they're not stupid, why would these guys say this at this mm-hmm. time? Because uh, you are a member of of a lot of people that say, yeah, this should not have been said. This should be done. For instance, just like the MIGs. The MIG discussion in public, ridiculous. If you want to give them the MIGs, give them the MIGs. Don't say a word about it. Right? It just says a policy, we don't discuss any arms sales in public, period. Right? Mm-hmm. So can you give me any insight as to why, why Secretary, the American Secretary of Defense on the first trip to Kiev, right, after this grand battle around the city in this dramatic setting says that i think he made a mistake either he he was not well prepared uh you know that's being charitable uh you know everybody says you know we all make slips like this Uh, but i think he was not you know his staff didn't prepare him well but i would also suggest if you get in that position you should uh, already know that there's some things you say and you don't say. You know, the way to talk about this is to say, you know, we're going to do what's necessary to, uh, you know, preserve an independent and free Ukraine. So you can't, and, you, can, you cannot, that. even in the depths of your intellect, you cannot provide me with an insight. Into- yeah, well, my, well, one of my theories is that often you and I probably don't know if I should say it, but the higher I got in rank, the more I realized that most people had gotten promoted two or three times more than they should have. And the higher you got, the more that seemed to be an accurate rule of thumb. The exception stood out. Uh, but I, I think it's just, you know, these, these per gentle, you know, it could be they're operating at a, a level uh, sort of beyond their sort of... Um, uh, what you call it, ideal level. Got it. Uh, and, you know, if you made me, you know, I don't know, secretary of treasury or made me vice president or president, I can't imagine what sort of uh, verbal faux pas I would say. You know, I would just be saying one thing after another that would, you know, people <laughs> like us would be tearing apart. But, you know, that's why, you know, when they don't, wouldn't even want to be in those positions. Uh, and would probably decline them if offered. Um, but there's maybe that is just an aspect of it. They were just out of their out of their league. Um, and you know, but that's they're not the first per people to say things like this. Uh, I just think it was a mistake uh, to say it. You know, of course, the one that 
gets a lot of attention is there's any number, but the one that I think of is Dean Acheson, who was the Secretary of State in 1950, you know, gave a made a comment at some it was kind of really an obscure event in Washington where he said something like uh, the Korean Peninsula is not within America's defense perimeter, something like that. And the Russians and the Chinese and the North, well, the North Koreans were the, the Russians and the Chinese. They heard it and said, okay, well, America's not going to do it. Not going to defend uh, South Korea. Here we go. And there was the statement made to Saddam Hussein uh, before the first Gulf War by the American ambassador uh, there was, um, who, who said, well, we don't take a, a position on inter- Arab disputes or something like that. And Saddam Hussein hears it and, well, he's got the green light. So these two two fellows are not the first ones who've said uh, things like this. It is surprising that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who appears to have said the same thing, he had more time to think about it. Uh, so I'm surprised that, that we would say this. It seems to me like a, a, a misreading of Russian psychology. Uh, and if I would not have, have used that language, but you know, people do slip up, but uh, at that level, uh, they should slip slip up less. Got it. The um, All right. Uh, there's been some interesting development. Well, well, let me ask you a general question about, um, <clears throat> about Russia v. Ukraine. Anything that has gone on there now in the last week or so surprise you? That has happened. It seems like Ukraine has begun to target uh, um, ammunition depots, fuel depots inside of Russia, in an attempt to make their logistical effort more difficult. Um, has there been uh, anything that you've seen in the last week that would uh, that would break squelch and has your interest? Uh, one thing was the reports that the Russians have sort of hit some rail. Um, centers in the western part of Ukraine, you know, potentially trying to interrupt the some of the supply flows. And, you know, you're sort of holding your breath and wondering when they're going to try to, to interdict, uh, you know, the, the, the supply networks and effort. And that got my attention, but it, it doesn't seem to have been a uh, too much. Uh, just yet, but that, that's you know you wonder what point you know they might uh, act on uh, on that, which really is you know the the West and some others you know, really pouring in a ton of stuff that's killing Russians. Uh, so I don't I wonder about that you know when they're they're going to go after it. But that was that's what got my attention this last week. Go after it in a much bigger way than a few missiles thrown at it. Yeah, that's it. I because mean, we really, know from trying to interdict the Ho Chi Minh Trail trying to destroy bridges that the North Vietnamese were incredible at regenerating those paths and sustaining their logistical effort. And I would, I would uh, not attribute anything to the North Vietnamese that I wouldn't attribute to the Ukrainians because they're moderately fired up for this war now. And so, uh, and then with the help of NATO partner, not NATO partners, but uh, NATO nations um, in terms of assets to do these kind of things, uh, I think it would be, uh, I don't know, I, I think it would be a mighty effort on the Russian uh, side to be able to do that with indirect fire alone, and I would see that ultimately as failing. 
Um, well, I was thinking with precision weapons, you know, if you, and particularly for things that move by rail. I was just wondering if how much they could actually accomplish, um, or take a shot. Across, but if they if they ever took a shot across the border, say in Poland, boy, that would be oh, that would be a, that would be a big deal. Well, they I mean they threw up and in on them to use a baseball term. Um, <clears throat> in the last what forty eight hours, they've cut the supply of gas to Poland and where else? Uh, the Bulgars. The Bulgarians, I think it was. I think you were right. Yeah. Uh, so that's, again, that's a not a small escalation. Yeah, of, I think uh, that's, wasn't that be called chin music? That would be called chin music. Well, it, no, that is drilling somebody. <laughs> okay. The chin music would be the threat, <laughs> right? Drilling somebody would be the actual event. So... Um, okay, well, well, then, but, yeah, they... Um, did uh yeah cut off the oil or the, the gas but i think the i wonder how what a big what how what a big deal that's going to be because I, I read something that somewhere for example that the germans are within, within a very short time will not be dependent on russian gas something like that and i wonder if it's possible with the the poles and the, the bulgarians to Know, for others to make up the make up the difference. You know, just curious how much well, of a and, and big with the, deal that is. Yeah. With us getting more towards summer and moderate temperatures, right? Not going to have the same impact as it would have been in the middle of winter. And again, you see headlines: Germany sending Gepard air defense tanks to support the Ukraine defense, right? And the significance this, of some of those air defense tanks is that they can shoot down missiles like that got after this target or set of rail targets. Now, I'm not sure what if, if uh, the Russians used hypersonic missiles, which would be problematic for the German Gepard system. Um, but you see those headlines. Another headline you see is uh, Poland confirms T-72 tank deliveries to Ukraine with Challenger 2 tanks to fill gaps. So you're seeing more and more hardware being he heading east uh, in support of Ukraine. So, so interesting. Yeah, that, that really is, you know, if you, and you look at how the dynamic of the whole thing has changed from the day it started, uh, that it now it and the, there's more people more willing to do more things and uh, for Ukraine. And so why do you think that is great? You think, I mean, the, the weakness that the Russians have shown people, because you know how it is when, you know, we think the bully's invincible. We're like, uh, and then all of a sudden we find out, oh. He can't take one on the chin. And now you see more people milling about. And then you see other wannabe bullies come out and say, hey, not so afraid anymore. Um, ooh, is that simply the case that Russia is now estimated as it's not all that? That Vladimir Putin is not the invincible Dr. Evil that we thought him to be? That his military is not going to be able to pull this off? And in the end, the Ukrainians just might win it? Um do you think it's that sentiment that's spreading throughout? Well, some of it, you know, certainly the I, the Ukrainians are to thank for all of it, for all yeah, of it, really, absolutely. by standing up and fighting and, and really dying in large numbers, which I think doesn't get the coverage it, it deserves. But, you know, it's sort of the psychology of war or battle where or that, you know, it, once you, you re react to what's going on, if it looks like, 
you know, one side is going to be there, then, well, you kind of think, well, maybe we'll take some chances and send some more stuff. And also, you, you don't want to get left behind if, you know, if all of these people are doing it. If, you know, if we don't get in and it is a great success, then we're not going to look all that good if it looks like we stiff the Ukrainians. And then you have the, some like the Poles, for example, uh, who and the the the, um, uh, the Baltic states, you know, that are scared to death of the Russians and they don't like them at all for historic reasons. And they've always been more willing to sort of push things. And, the, and then you have the, the American administration, which, you know, at the beginning offered President Zelensky a ride out of Ukraine. Uh, <laughs> and now we're all, you know, we seem to be we're doing all it. We're all in. We're all in on it. And so it's that it, the, the psychology shifts and that reflects itself in what people do. Right. Uh, you do, you know, like with anything, you're always looking over your shoulder and wondering, you know, if there's a punch coming from somewhere. And maybe the real test of all of this will be if the Rus- when the Russians get their stuff in line and, you know, have another go at the Ukrainians, you know, that's going to, it's, you know, it's, it's easy to sort of be really supportive. Yeah, we're, we're, yeah, we're all they, waiting for the blitzkrieg yeah. unleashed by the mighty Russian army. But we continue well, to wait for it. Well, you know, it's, you know, some things, they're, they're going to surprise us. You think so? You know, and I, I gather there's like a guards tank army coming down from Moscow. And, you know, they really ought to make sure that, you know, they're doing, somebody's doing a very good job at killing officers. Um, you know, they ought to make life difficult for them as well. But I do think that we're going, we haven't heard the last of the, the Russians. Um mm. But, you know, they, but you so say the point being that, you know, it's it's easy to, you know, get real excited about things when things are going well. And it's how we respond to any future reverses that um, that that I wonder about. That'll be a test. It always is. Got it. But let's say that. But yes, when you when did, when did this start, like February 23rd or 24th ish? And you so you look, it's only been two months, but you look at the the shifts and thinking and. And, you know, uh, what people are doing as a response. And it really has changed a lot. Remember at the very beginning, it was there was a lot of ooing and aahing about there being Chechens. You know, the Russians put Chechens in. Well, the Chechens are really cruel, but I've never seen any indication that they're really good soldiers. And you haven't heard much of them lately. Uh, but they and you, so we've kind of people have kind of got their wits about them more than they had it. And the Ukrainians are the ones to, to thank for all of this, really. Um, but and there's always, you know, a lot going on behind the scenes, you know, that we never see in these things. And I hope we I hope we're doing um, a lot of useful full activities. And I would suspect we are um, that are being very helpful for the Ukrainians. Just my my guess. So. Uh, but it does, you know, when you step back a bit and think about, you know, the idea that we're having this kind of a war, a war in Europe, you know, I could see the Yugo, Yugoslavs sort of slaughtering each other. That's what they do. But this kind of a war in this place between these kind of countries at this time really is a, this is history in the making. You know, this isn't something that's going to be forgotten about by, you know, by next December. Right. Um, before we talk about red lines in Australia and in Japan and the Solomon Islands and China, um, any thoughts? Uh, General Krulak uh, 
put his name in public as a critic of the current commandant, something that none of us have ever seen, um, in an opinion piece written by he, General Sheehan, and General Zinni in the Washington Post. Any additional, anything relative on anything on that front that uh, that has caught your eye in the last week? Oh, my goodness. No, I've noticed that some of the opposition or the the opposition or the other side of the debate, put it that way, because I don't look at it as opposition. I, it's, you know, or it shouldn't be um, that I think they're presenting better arguments now in the things that I've seen written. Uh, I don't go over. I don't read everything in in all detail, but it, that was my but skimming over a few things. It did look as if they had addressed some particular uh, shortcomings uh, that I thought was a, a good thing to see. You know, there's one that really did catch my eye. It was sort of, um, how are you going to keep these um, little platoons hidden and where are you going to put them? And, you know, you know, these are, and they, somebody rightly pointed out, well, all of these places you're going to put them belong to somebody. And what if they don't want you there? Uh, so those, and that's that's pointing out a basic question that anybody is going to raise about you know the, the plan, and the you know so the, that, that look that's something that got my attention is I thought the the counter arguments I thought were better framed uh, than they had been. Okay, let's talk about uh, the Solomon Islands. This continuing. Uh, head shaking event. Australia, could you explain why this is a red line for the Australians? Um, it's about what, 2,000 kilometers, so what, 12, 1,300 miles from, from Australia. And it would be putting potentially a Chinese base, military base, uh, that close to Australia. And Australia, like the New Zealanders, have always thought of themselves as so far down to the south that they don't really have anything to worry about. But now you've got a, a potential Chinese military base there. And that also, uh, the base and the Chinese operating out of there, it uh, allows them to influence throughout the Southwest Pacific into the South Pacific. Uh, and that changes the entire strategic dyna dynamic for the Australians. They no longer have this uh, geographic sanctuary uh, in which they could sort of do whatever they do and collect themselves and then decide where they're going to join in a fight. Um, and it would, in immediate terms, it affects their ability to operate uh, on behalf of Taiwan. It allows China to pressure uh, the um, uh, the Australian. You start you get this missile threat. You start seeing Australian ships or Chinese ships and submarines operating. Uh, off around Australia, just letting them know that, you know, if you do, you know, the, you don't have freedom of movement like you did. And, you know, here we are. So that that is a, a big change. You know, the Australians call it a red line, but one fairly asks, well, okay, well, what are you going to do? And I don't think the Australians have really come up with a, a good plan. You know, if the idea is to send Australian forces there to Occupy the occupy Solomon Islands. I don't know that that's um, the way to go. Uh, but it, so the Australians got themselves into this mess, and they've we've allowed them to get us into the mess as well by outsourcing our foreign policy 
uh, to them. You know, this what was coming has been known since at least 2019. It has been well known to the Australians, well known to the U.S. government, and yet nobody did anything. So until this you know, last week, you have this visit, you know, by the some Kurt Campbell and the State Department, the, the Asia Tsar and head of Asia Pacific at the State Department, some other luminaries to visit to Solomon Islands. But it does have an air of desperation to it when you come, you know, come now and not not have addressed the problem earlier. It is about 1,100 miles uh, from, I would say, the closest point of Australia. This is me doing some of the handiwork that I do on Google Earth Pro. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with my map skills, I am second to no fucking buddy on a map, okay? Just so everybody knows. I handle a map. I don't even know what I would, what the appropriate analogy would be, okay? But it would be a superlative. So, um, 1,100 miles uh, would be the Solomon Islands to um, Australia, to the north. And it's not the eastern part of Australia. It would be the north-northeastern quadrant of Australia, for those of you that are familiar with the compass. And I understand most of you are fucking not. Even your Marines. Yeah, most of you sucked at land now. Okay, I know. Because I would stay outside looking for you. So <laughs> anyhow, um, um, yeah, uh, about 1,100 miles, which is sobering. And again, what I continue not to understand now, and Japan got into this as well last week, Grant. Could you bring us up to speed on the Japanese comments on all of this? Oh, well, lots of furrow-browed Japanese people over what's, <clears throat> what's happened uh, down there. And, and Japan really is, <clears throat> excuse me, attuned to what's going on in the Pacific, in some ways better than the Americans. Uh, they have more of a diplomatic presence, a commercial presence as well. But, the, I've, the, but I've changed my position on the Americans. I believe that the reason they don't do anything is because they don't want to. It's not that they don't know that they should do something. It's they don't, they don't want to upset whatever economic equation with the Chinese. I believe, I believe it's the worst kind of mistake, and that is willful. They don't want to do this. I, otherwise, I cannot. Because I've, I've implored you for an explanation. You have... Uh, giving me the back of your hand consistently. I, I did. I, <laughs> on a I weekly drilled, basis. I dr- yeah, I drilled you. But, exactly. Um, you drilled uh, you like <laughs> right across the face. Every time I ask you, Grant, could you explain this? And as a podcast expert, you're supposed to be, have an explanation. You do not. And well, I so did say, well, I did say they were lazy. <laughs> to me, believe. whenever somebody doesn't have an explanation, you know what I default to? Money. Look for the answer in money, and you will find what you are looking for. And I—that's what I—that's the only thing I can come, I, I can come away with is the reason this this isn't happening is that somebody doesn't want it to. That somebody—it's in somebody's interest for this for this thing that has been telegraphed forever. It's like the pitcher standing on the mound saying, "Hey, I'm I'm gonna." Th- I'm thinking about throwing a curveball. Mm-hmm. And he's standing on the mountain. He doesn't get ready to throw it yet. And then he says louder, I'm going to throw a curveball. And then he's screaming, I'm going to throw a fucking curveball, okay? 
And then everybody's standing there, and nobody does anything. And then he throws a curveball. And now, after he threw the curveball, you know, we're all, you know, that's a red line. That's a red line. So why would nobody react? And, and again, attributing things to stupidity, as you did with the Secretary of Defense, I find an act of folly. I don't want to be too critical to your face. I would normally re- wait till you got off the show and then say, yeah, he doesn't know shit, okay? But I'm not going to do that with you, Grant. So I'm, uh, I, 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 for the life of me, I cannot understand this. And now we all, now we're all wringing our hands, and I just don't get it. No, to me, it is the the sloth. Um, you know, if you plus that you expose yourself to criticism, it takes some effort. Uh, you know, there's a there's an expression that, that I heard from a sort of a Hong Kong policeman back when the British ran the place. And it, it's a Cantonese expression, which I don't know. But he said it, it translates as um, do lots, lots of trouble, do, do little, little trouble, do nothing, no trouble. And he used that to describe a certain type of thinking within the Hong Kong police force. And I have, think that there is, I have seen it displayed uh, in a lot of places. You know, if you were to be take some initiative in, say, the South the Solomon Islands, you know, you would run into the interagency, you know, this, which I think could stop the earth from trends, you know, moving <laughs> on its axis. And you would just, there'd be so much trouble to get it done. And then you've got to get up to Capitol Hill and get support for it. So it's just as easy to, you know, uh, you know, send a four star down every once in a while and, uh, you know, have the, and have the Australians look at it for you. So I think that's part of it. But, you know, I have a, I was talking to a guy from Charm City. What? Which, from Charm City. What is that? That is the actual, that is like the, the nickname for Baltimore. <laughs> I'm not making this up. You know, look it up in the internet. Hold on. I look it up on the internet. That I, is... I, I was as astonished as you. The only but... thing you left out was, I swear to God. Hold on. Yeah, I swear. Charm City. Um, Let's see. Charm City is, a, uh, is evidently a show. No, it's, the, it's what you would call Baltimore. Um, I'm not seeing anything. Well, I suggest you. <sighs> Once again, it, you, it, you know, the, 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 the saying that I thought you were going to, um, the, the saying that I thought you were going to give us was, um, oh, my God, why is Baltimore called Charm City? Baltimore is a major city of Maryland with a long history as an important seaport. Fort McHenry, I just saw the flag that flew at Fort McHenry. You can see that at the National Archives if you go. Um, hold on. Let me give you the answer to this. There is no reason, I think. it's Even though Charm City hasn't been an official city slogan for many years, it has stuck around in the hearts and minds of residents and travelers. So let's talk about how Baltimore's charming nickname came to be long before it was charm city john quincy adam dubbed baltimore the monumental city in 1827 but at, and so just so everybody knows grant hates baltimore he does not hate baltimore he does he you know, how do you know he hates it he denies it right yeah like peter right when asked if he was associated with jesus of nazareth okay yet grant's only denied it once so far 
Okay. Right? Blaming it, blame it on Rick <laughs> Robinson and Dave McNally. Don't Bill go Robinson. near the hallowed names of Baltimore. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Brooks Robinson, right? Yes. Dave McNally, yes. Jim Palmer, okay. yes. Johnny Unitas, yes. Okay. Boog Powell, yes. So, anyway. So, you're right. Okay. But anyway, then back to what I was talking about. You know, oh. I was talking to a, a guy I know from Charm City. And, you know, he, he, but this is what he, you know, he wrote, you know, said is, you know, we were talking about why we don't do anything like for places like Solomon Islands. He says that after 40 plus years in government, it's been my observation that most senior leaders in Congress, the military and in government agencies honestly do not think that there is much worth going to war over outside of a direct attack against the United States. The U.S. is insulated from having to really come to grips with any threat, pacing or otherwise, by the geographic reality of the oceans on each coast in Canada to our north. And I think there's something to that, that, you know, you know thinking about it, you know, you know, I can think of how many times I was told that, oh, we will never fight a war, never fight the Chinese, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that may be, you know, something to add to the add to the debate, you know, along with laziness and the interagency and, um, you know, yeah, most people I, not being as smart as me. So, <laughs> so what, so what was the Japanese contribution to all this? What did they have to say? Oh, back to the, oh boy, how did we get off of that? I don't but, know. The, the Jap- I'm well, trying Japanese- to tee this shit up for you and you okay. keep resisting me. Okay. Well, the Japanese, well, you, you were um, uh, sort of baiting me. Well, but you know, they, what I wanted to get to was I thought where you were going with the Cantonese quote by the Cantonese police officer was, he's like a dog licking himself. He just can't help it, right? I thought that was going to be your, because that's one of your, that's one of my favorite quotes. It, it is one. It, um, the... But what the, the Japanese went down, and they of course said how they're they're concerned about the the possibility of the Chinese setting up, and you know now no doubt you know saying we you know we want to keep the relationship with Solomon's going, et cetera, et cetera. But what they did not do is, and this is what the Australians have studiously not done, is they have not talked to anybody in the opposition. Uh, to the Solomon prime minister, who really is like a corrupt thug. Uh, and he always has been. And everyone, it's not a secret as well. And the Australians know it. Um, but the, the, so they, the Japanese, like the Australians, they go to the Solomon Islands and they talk to this guy and maybe his coterie, his little group of people. But they don't talk to the opposition politicians who are, who represent you know you know a lot of people they don't talk to the religious groups who are immensely important in the Solomon Islands they don't talk to the women's groups who are even more important in that society and they just talk to the like the guy who runs the place and the thing is if um, if they had a vote that vast majority of Solomon Islanders would be opposed to this deal with the Chinese and they would vote to oust uh, the the prime minister he would not win an election and so what we're doing and so what the Australians and the Japanese have done is they have not they're focusing on this guy who's trying to stay in power with the help of the Chinese and he's also probably he's going to try to postpone the 2023 elections to keep himself in power and that's who they're talking to as if he's somehow going to be persuaded 
uh, to change his mind. Okay, so Grant, I'm asking you to explain this, and you're making mm-hmm. it more stupid than it was when we before we started. Um, yeah, well, that's well. The, the, I will try to be nice. Is the Americans did go, you know, in this thing that kind of looked like a, you know, desperate sort of Chinese fire drill. Right. And uh, but what they did do is they did talk to some of the opposition. Right. Some of those oh, groups I mentioned, which is actually, a good thing. We broke the code on that one. Well, somebody listened to some advice that was out there, <laughs> and say good for them. Right. Um, and that that's how you start. And uh, otherwise, you're never going to talk this guy into um, sort of reforming. He doesn't want to. He'll be glad to take any gifts you want to give, any development programs. Uh, But he's going to use, you know, his armed thugs, uh, use corrupt police, corrupt uh, prosecutors to go after and intimidate the opposition. And he's going to try to set up a, and with the Chinese down there, it's going to, further help him solidify his position. And he's going to try to establish a one-party state in Solomon Islands. Uh, and the other thing that, uh, so that's what you know, what's coming if we don't get this right. And when you do pay attention to the opposition, it helps them. You know, it gives them encouragement. It gives them some prestige and some, uh, it adds to their power and influence locally. And that it's such an obvious thing to do, but we rarely do it. Uh, but so that's one thing to do. But the other thing is too that I've always wished we would is to go after the the juice, the thing that juices Chinese influence efforts, and that's the corruption. It's these the bribes, the under the table payments uh, that say that that allow the Chinese to come in, allow Chinese businesses to come in, uh, and for example, and allow illegal Chinese immigrants to come in, allow Chinese organized crime to operate allows the prime ministers and his guys to buy real estate in Australia. So some people might say, well, we should have a full court intelligence press on that, expose it to high heaven and give our friends and give the the decent people in these countries something to work with. Um, But we never do that. So these guys are allowed to sort of in darkness sort of get their claws into the the country and strangle it. Um, So I've never understood why we don't play that, that card. Uh, that would be a part of the, uh, the proper uh, approach to it, to my way of thinking. So, you know, what's going to come? What what are prospects? You know, I have to tell you, you paint a such a fucking depressing pa- uh, picture of of uh, willful neglect, of uh, laziness, and incompetence that. I don't know. Like, I don't even know what to say. Like, can it be that fucked up and stupid? Uh, yeah, I, I think so. And I'm trying to be be nice you know, because it, <laughs> you know, it isn't it isn't like you know, the, the last word on superlative performance. Um, but yeah, this is that bad. Uh, and you know, the Australian case, it, it's just even worse. Um, you know, and so. In 2019, all this stuff was known. It was known what was coming. Uh, there were people who tried to sound the alarm, to, to get, who did password, tried to get the attention, say, of the Australians, and they were rebuffed, you know, at, at every turn. And it's not as if the Americans, um, you know, actually jumped on this one as well. Uh, they, they, 
last administration did do some, they were the first ones to pay attention to the region. They actually had a guy in, uh, responsible for it who, who did a good job, but they really only had two and a half years. Uh, and they did get in and preempt a Chinese effort to uh, sort of establish a, basically a, lay the groundwork for establishing a naval base in New Guinea. Uh, they got in with the Australians and did a good job on that. Something similar in Fiji, they they did well. But the Solomons got didn't get anywhere near the attention it deserved. And in fact, the... Uh, Do you think, think it was that neglect that, you know, and uh, because again, as you, if you've, you know, kind of painted for us, um, with these American bases and and with this american patronage comes a lot of money and the people that run those countries are not uh are, are no strangers to and you know mr duterte uh, did it with the chinese um and so it, and it is that way much of the world that the people that rule the nation um are are the most prominent business players and if one of these uh, if another nation comes calling and is looking to invest large amounts of money, they will be the first people with their pockets open to 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 reap the rewards of that. Yes. Well, yeah, it's just like you know Chicago or Charm City, right. you know anywhere. Charm but, City, what the? And, and, and that's why, you, well, um, well, the monumental city. Sorry, the. Um, <laughs> uh, no, it's like anywhere there's. Humans. It's also known as Crab City. Just so you, you know. know. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. But. Um, but the, the, the my point is, you know, that's what's going to happen. But if you don't expose the hell out of it, that it's going to work. And that's one of the reasons that people kill investigative reporters. It's why gangsters don't like them and corrupt politicians don't like them because they actually are a real threat. And that is where I say so I think this is Which a, begs the question, why do you write about the Yakuza in Japan? See, because I'm an idiot. <laughs> Does, uh, does that does that? For those of you that don't know, Grant yeah. writes about Japanese organized crime. <laughs> yeah, he knows a little about them. But the um, uh, but the, the point is that it, it's an area where I wish we would apply our resources. You know, say intelligence resources, or financial intelligence, could, which can often really be do very good work. Uh, let the NSA earn its keep, um, and then expose it. And you're giving the honest people. Uh, something to work with. You're giving them some protection. But if you don't do that, you're going to get, you know, 37 years of Robert Mugabe. And, and then, you know, we, we, for whatever reason, we uh, just don't attack on those lines and then offer them, you know, the, then our sort of aid efforts, our support is going to uh, stand out and be more effective. But if you don't go after the corruption uh, and to say really expose it and punish and you know, seize stuff and uh, that it isn't going to work. And ironically, there was, I think it was late last year, there was, or maybe early this year, there was a, the Biden administration launched a, it was an anti-corruption scheme that was going to be like the hallmark of their diplomacy. And I told a guy that, look, this is just, the rollout is the project. Um, you know, they, they had the press conference and, uh, I haven't seen any indication that anyone's really taking it seriously, but Solomon Islands would be a, a place to do it. And it is, it is well known what has been going on there. Uh, and yet the Australians haven't mentioned it. The Americans have stood by with eyes primly averted, being busy elsewhere, apparently. So 
but you know we have an opportunity. We'll, um, but again, we, crosses a red line. So the ja the the Chinese have signed a a security pact with the um, Solomon Islands, and now the Japanese and other people are making uh, statements saying, "Look, a Chinese naval base there is a red line that cannot be crossed." And the Solomon Island guys said. Oh, no, no, no. They will not have a naval base in the Solomon Islands. So what say ye about that? Well, they're going to have it. If the guy said they aren't, they will. If the Chinese say they won't have it or have one, then that's all the even more proof. If the Chinese say it, you can just take the opposite and that will be true. No, that this is what's coming. Uh, but, you know, what you, in terms of the red line, you know, okay, well, what are you going to do if you are going to ignore the opposition, if you are going to ignore the misbehavior, the wrongdoing of the guy running the place, uh, if you're going to allow him to postpone the, the election, uh, if you're not going to get uh, the rest of the Pacific involved in this. Um, and one thing the Americans could do to show they're serious is to sort of uh, redo the the COFA, these agreements they have with Palau, Marshall Islands, and Micronesia, do it tomorrow. You know, show you're serious and pay some attention. That will get noticed throughout the region. Uh, the, um, but in terms of saying, well, this is a red line, well, you know, okay, what are you going to do? But also, if you think you're going to outspend or outbid the Chinese for uh, the this uh Sogavari, the, the head of Solomon Islands, uh, for his loyalty, you know, that's not going to work. He's going to take whatever you have to offer, pocket it, and put it into foreign bank accounts and uh, buy more support with corrupt politicians in the uh, in the country and stick with the Chinese. He says he said what he's going to do, and that's what he's going to do. Um, and he's going to couch it, of course, in uh, anything that's done against him as oh, racist and anti it's colonialism and blah 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 uh, but if you look at that deal they signed with the chinese it looks like um, if you took like the say the, the most powerful colonialist in history whoever that would be it's like he drafted it um, it's the chinese have basically said solomon islands is uh, our place to do whatever we feel like and it's not quite like that, but it really gives them just immense freedom of action. And that's the, the situation that, that's happened. And they say it has, it has festered uh, over the years. And this is what comes of such neglect, I think. The, um, all right, I want to ask you one more question. And we're going to talk about what you've written in the last days so we can be critical of you. Um, China promotes coal and setback for efforts to cut emissions. <laughs> the only thing missing is the rim shot, right? Um, let's see. China is promoting coal-fired power as the ruling Communist Party tries to revive a sluggish economy, prompting warnings Beijing is setting back efforts to cut climate-changing carbon emissions from the biggest global source. Um, and then it talks about numbers of billions of millions of tons that the Chinese will launch into the atmosphere burning coal. Um is is this anything but humorous relative to the Chinese? Unless you're a, an, an environmental activist, in which case you're crying because, you know, the Chinese show up at these summits and they say all the right things, and then they turn around and they go back to their country and they would do whatever the fuck they want to. Um, is, there any, is there any news here? 
No, the I don't think the activists are crying because they've got their eyes so firmly shut the tears can't come out and their fingers are in their ears uh, plugged up. So they, this is willful stupidity, just ignoring you know what is, is obvious, what the Chinese are doing, that they are the source of most of the world's environmental problems, one fairly suggests, and yet uh, nobody criticizes them. Uh, where's Greenpeace? Um, where's Sierra Club? Where's any of those people? So now it just exposes once again the, the hypocrisy of these ideologues uh, who, you know, are you know, hell-bent on turning American, America back into an agrarian society of 200 years ago, um, but ignore what the Chinese are doing. And this is crazy. Uh, but it's been going on, and you know, it's, it's really nothing new, but it's just the latest uh, sort of piece of evidence to add to the add to the the pile. Um, next question before we get to your thing, um, the Chinese have been pretty adept at um, at at staying at arm's length from the Russians. Um, you don't see too many stories written about uh, China China enabling Russia. Um, has that been a successful public relations campaign by them? Uh, yeah, they've had plenty of apologists who just describe them as just trying to thread the needle, you know, handle and navigate a difficult sort of situation. But actually, I think under the table, you'll find plenty of economic and financial support that is going to the Russians is just not being exposed and probably some military support as well. Uh, but the, the Chinese are not uh, turning on the Russians at all. Um, they're basically lying to the world or to us while uh, doing everything they can to help the Russians. Um, that, I think, would be the fairer assessment of that. Got it. Got it. All right. Now, this is the grand finale. Grant, what are you writing these days? Hmm. They, I wrote um, something. I'm just about finished it up uh, on Solomon Islands. Um, that takes to task uh, things that the people who should have done their jobs better, and also in, it suggests what we should be doing. And it's like what um, uh, uh, sort of like what we talked about. So I sort of talked through a, a good bit of the article uh, on that. And then I've got another one if I can get to it. Um, it has to do with um, the Marine Corps getting access in the Pacific region. And you, you can imagine. Um, and what got me got my attention was when the commandant was in Australia a couple of weeks ago, uh, he made a comment to the effect that um, we don't really have a good idea what's going on in the it's like the South Pacific. And but you know, we really don't know and we'll never know as well as you Australians do. And what I would suggest is that either he was being very polite to his audience or his G2 has not done their job or he isn't listening to his G2 or there's something worse um, here. But they, the point is that the, the Marine Corps should know we should have the region wired. Uh, there's no reason we don't. And that's, so that's kind of what I'm getting at. And that's it. Um, yeah, but I, it will be constructive. <laughs> yeah. It will be constructive. Uh, what have you read lately that you would recommend to others? 
I was oh. pro- I was prompted to ask you this. You ask your your Mensa brothers what they're reading, but you never ask Grant that. And I said, well, yeah. I think by the time I'm done with Grant, he's intellectually spent, and I don't want to push him too far because he's somewhat fragile Virginian. Uh, well, but I, I, today I'm not respecting those limits. Hmm. Um, what have you read recently that you would recommend to others? Oh, goodness. Well, I find that when I'm done with like my own thoughts, there's nothing much left to... Uh, I'm, in, I'm intellectually... <laughs> What's I'm, the point? I'm intellectually <laughs> spent by yeah. my own thoughts. Oh my goodness! Um, oh, there's uh, there's always some. Oh goodness! I was just thinking of some stuff, um, uh, but I can't think of it right now. I'll think <laughs> of it for next time. Yeah, you know, next time I'll have a list of things. Just one thing. Just one thing that you would say. Yeah, you might. Uh, this guy's written a book. Uh, like the Toll series of books on naval history and things like oh, that. I've heard those are really good, John. Yeah, yeah. The, um, um, I would read uh, James Lilly's book, China Hands. James um, Lilly? Mm-hmm, China Hands. Got it. That, Got that's, it. If I would just pick one. Oh, and book, what, what is that about? Well, he was like, an, he uh, grew up in China. Um, he was a former CIA guy, but also he was the ambassador in China as well for a while. Uh, and he was like back when like the CIA had honest people. Um, but he's like an honest CIA guy. And um, the but it really understood the Chinese absolutely, you know, had them. And, you know, he passed on probably 10, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, unfortunately, because he really made charlatan squirm. Um, but his book is excellent you know, about his experiences. Uh, but also, if you can find anything that he wrote um, about uh, the PRC, if you can find it on the Internet, even short pieces, those are really worth looking at because um, he and you'll use like me, you will wish he was still around uh, commenting on the stuff. But that would be a good place to something that if I had some time, I would probably reread it. All right. James Lilly. Would you recommend, uh, is he a prolific writer? Does he write much? Oh, no, no. It, um, he, I think he only wrote one book, but you will find some things he has written here and there on the Internet, and they're always very good. James Lilly, books, biography, blog, audiobooks, Kindle. Um, let's see, top James Lilly titles. This is the wrong James Lilly. L-I-L-L-E-Y. L I L L E Y James, mm-hmm. yeah. huh? Not the, not the right guy. James L- huh. Lilly. It should be CIA, right? Uh huh. Yeah, China hands. I think was the CIA. Um, China hands. Nine decades of adventure, espionage, yada yada yada. James R. Lilly in Wikipedia. He died in November of 2009, was a CIA operative and an American diplomat. He served as United States ambassador to China from 1989 to 1991. Learned Mandarin at a young age before his family moved back to the United States at the outbreak of World War II. Served in the Army, graduated from Yale. Got a master's degree in international relations from George Washington, then joined the CIA where he would work for 30 years before he became the ambassador to China 
1989. He was the director of the American Institute in Taiwan, Washington's de facto embassy on the island and ambassador to South Korea. After the suppression of the Tiananmen Square protests, Lilly was critical of the Chinese crackdown and harbored a prominent dissident in the embassy, but worked to prevent long-term damage to United States-China relations. After his retirement, he published a memoir and worked as a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. So there you have it, James Lilly. Recommended by Grant Newsham. All right, Grant. Um, what else you, uh, it's late there, right? What time is it right now in um, Taipei? Oh, it's like coming up on two-ish. All right, so you stay up very late, and, and as a writer in the mold of Hemingway, that's what people like you do. Um, what do you, do you sleep in till about two or three in the afternoon, get up, drink, go, drink? Go a little, little, little boxing and, uh, boxing, uh, then deep sea fishing, and, yeah. Then, um, yeah, that's my my life. Then join your friends at a harem, and smoke opium, and then do some writing. Is that it? Yeah, that that's exactly it. You appears my GoPro appears to be on uh, where everyone can <laughs> exactly. See. Little did you know your <laughs> GoPro was being leaked, so you might want to tighten that shit up. All right. Grant, first of all, uh, I enjoy the liberal arts discussion. Hmm. So uh, I haven't had the chance to use the expression chin music ever. Oh, well, I come think on. I, I used it wrong, unfortunately. But the, uh, but well, you were in the ballpark, so to speak. Okay. It was okay. the chin music is the threat, the actual drilling. When you actually cut off the gas, that's beyond throwing up and in on them. So I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Well, no, I think you do. And that's why you got very correct very quickly, which I appreciate. So anyway, anyway, all right, Grant, you have a nice evening and sure. uh, good luck on the good luck on the boat tomorrow. Okay, <laughs> okay. Right. See you later. All Thanks right. a lot. See you. There right. you go. It's Grant's really depressing, you know. I mean, fuck. Everything gets not everything, but I mean, his explanation is. Are we really that stupid and short-sighted in our foreign policy? Oh, my God. Now, I have to think about my day today. And my understanding is the Yankees play the Orioles this afternoon. But I'm looking, and... I'm not seeing a game. Orioles-Yankees, 7.05 p.m. Eastern. Well, that screws my day up. I thought they were going to play in the morning. Hmm. Anyway. <sighs> Shit. Yeah, I had my day mapped around, around the ball game coming on in 20 minutes. So I have to tell you that that, uh, that throws me for a loop. Mm-hmm. I will bravely try to soldier on, though. My thanks to Grant for coming on this morning and waxing eloquent about all things that he spoke about. And Grant, always an interesting uh, person to have on, and I enjoy our conversations. And he makes me smart all the time. I, To me, like, are we really that fucked up? That's disturbing, right? 
So the picture that he paints is the Secretary of Defense just spoke wrongly, and now the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff doubles down with it. That's disturbing. That we're like stupid in the Pacific. And I don't understand that. So, yeah, we got that going for us. So on that note, uh, I'm Mike McNamara, the Salmarine Radio. Thanks for listening. If I can help you help somebody else, don't hesitate. Let me know. I'd be happy to. Yeah, I'm building a slide. And on the slide... Ninety-four percent of the American population, adults, does not have a serious mental illness. Yet when they struggle, what do we do? We induct them into the mental illness machine. And what does that mean we do? We medicate them and you can go to therapy forever. But it doesn't work. All you got to do is look at the data. And so um, on the slide, you know, I would tell you that Post-traumatic winning applies to like 94% of the population. And um, we're misapplying, I think, mental health protocols to people that don't have them. And what they need is a mentor that shows them. And this is how you do this stuff. Okay, boys and girls. Yep. This is how you do this. And if you will do these things and you will do them with some consistency, then you can fundamentally change your life. However, if you won't do these and you won't live with some consistency, then guess what? Your life is going to be fucked up. And there is no magic pill. There is no easy path to live a great life. And that is the way it is. And when that comes from somebody of credibility, which I want to encourage you, all of you have credibility in somebody's eyes. And if that person is struggling, don't be afraid to tell them that. There is no easy route through this. And again, I talk about, and I talk to you know different people about this. Well, they're mostly service members. Can you imagine after we came back from Iraq and Afghanistan, if they would have put us in a room with Vietnam veterans shut the door, cleared everybody else out and said, hey, how about it? And those guys would have looked at us and said, this is what your life is going to be like. Could you imagine, you know, what we would have learned, the seriousness with, with which we would have taken that? Yeah, I mean, it would have been, it was what we should have heard from the people we should have heard it from. But instead, you know, we initially got chaplains. I mean, I don't know too many people that took that seriously. I mean, we listened politely. But yeah, he doesn't know me. I don't have these problems. And then uh, later on, mental health professionals would show up and lecture us. Yeah, they don't know me. And I don't like, I don't have those issues. So this doesn't apply to me. Yeah. 
So anyway, my point would be, I would tell you that 94% of the time, my own belief is that you are the best person to help somebody who's struggling that doesn't have a serious mental illness. And the things I've learned from talking to all these people can help you. So if I can help you help somebody, don't hesitate. So on that note, I'm Mike McNamara. This is All Marine Radio. Have a great day. Even though the Yankees don't play till tonight. Go Anthony Rizzo. Give me a minute and I will mix this thing down.